This is just great. First the girl I'm trying to date gets possessed, then turns into a dog. That's not as bad as the whole grid getting shut down by the bureaucrats. Hey, can we focus on the problem at hand, please? Proton pack's ready. Check. Check. Whoa, what's that? It's him. It's Mazer. I thought he died. That doesn't seem to have slowed him down any. Mazer? As a duly constituted representative of the city of New York, and on behalf of the county and state of New York, the United States of America, the planet Earth, and all its inhabitants, I hereby order you to cease and desist all supernatural activity and return at once to your place of origin or next parallel dimension. Well, that ought to do it. Are you a god? Uh, no. Some creatures. What's he talking about? Choose what? What do you mean, choose? We don't understand. Choose. I think he's saying that since we're about to be sacrificed anyway, we get to choose the form we want him to take. You mean, if I stand here and concentrate on the image of Ian Morrison, Mazer will appear as Ian Morrison and wipe us out? That appears to be the case. Don't think of anything yet. Clear your minds. We only get one crack at this. The choice is made. The We didn't choose anything. I didn't think of an image. Did you? No. I... I couldn't help it. It just popped in there. Look! What? What... what is it, Ray? What did you think of? It can't be. It can't be. It's... it's... The Jodcast, where the nominations are Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Roy Smith. The Jodcast, February 2009 issue. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Roy Smith, and with me is Stuart Lowe. Hi Roy, hi everyone. And this time, unfortunately, we're missing Nick, who is away at a conference, so can't be with us. It's been a bit a bit of a busy start to the year, actually. We've all been all over the place, so it's difficult to get us more than one of us in a room at the same time. So, coming up in the show this time, we talk about your chance to help decide what the Hubble Space Telescope observes. We find out what you can see in the night sky during February. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the story of massive star formation, methane plumes on Mars, and ancient lunar oscillations. There is a great variety in the sizes of stars that we observe in our galaxy. Some are as massive as 120 times the mass of our own sun, but the question of how such massive stars form has puzzled astronomers for many years. As a gas cloud collapses, a protostar forms in the centre, getting brighter and hotter as it accretes more material and grows. Current models suggest that for stars with masses greater than 20 times that of the sun, the amount of light produced creates so much radiation pressure on the surrounding gas cloud that it overcomes the gravity of the young star and blows away the gas, preventing further accretion and halting the growth of the star. Computer simulations of stars forming in just two dimensions suggest that the strong radiation completely stops the accretion process when a star reaches about 40 solar masses, still well below the sizes of the most massive stars observed in the sky. But new research published in Science Express during January has found that these massive stars can form despite this strong radiation. A team led by Mark Krumholtz at the University of California at Santa Cruz has carried out sophisticated simulations of star formation in three dimensions 
which show that not only is massive star formation possible without the young star blowing away the surrounding gas cloud, but that the process naturally leads to the formation of binary or multiple star systems. When they ran the simulation at the San Diego Supercomputer Center, a project which required many months of computing time, the group found that as the gas cloud collapsed onto the growing protostellar core, instabilities developed in the gas, creating some channels where radiation blew out through the cloud and others where the gas continued to fall onto the star. Rotation of the gas cloud creates a disk of material around the protostar. Instabilities caused this disk to form clumps, which led to several other protostars being created, accidentally explaining why so many massive stars exist in multiple systems. Also reported in Science Express during January was a study of methane gas in the atmosphere of Mars. More than 95% of the planet's atmosphere is composed of carbon dioxide, together with much smaller amounts of nitrogen, carbon monoxide, oxygen, water vapour and argon. Other chemicals are present in the Martian atmosphere in very small quantities, including the molecule methane. A group of researchers led by Michael Mummer at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre used the IRTF and Keck telescopes on Hawaii to take spectra of Mars over a seven-year period, searching for signatures of methane to investigate variations both across the planet's surface and with the seasons. What they found were concentrations of the gas over certain parts of the planet's surface, including plumes over parts of the Sirtis Major region, which varied with changes in the seasons. Methane in both our atmosphere and that of Mars is destroyed by sunlight, so the presence of significant amounts of this gas suggests that there is an ongoing production mechanism. The largest plume detected in this study contained almost 19,000 metric tons of methane, which, according to Mummer, requires a release rate of more than half a kilogram per second, comparable to releases from fissures in the seafloor at Coral Oil Point in the Santa Barbara Channel here on Earth. The mechanism of methane production on Mars, however, is not yet known. Suggestions include many processes already studied on the Earth, including various geological and biological mechanisms. On Earth, methane is produced in magma during volcanic activity, and also in a process known as serpentinization, where the mineral olivine reacts with water at low temperatures to produce the mineral serpentine and the gas methane. It is also possible that the plumes of methane might be caused by microbes deep below the Martian surface under the permafrost layer. As yet, it is not known whether geological or biological processes are responsible for the seasonal plumes, but a future Mars probe carrying a mass spectrometer could narrow down the options, since organic and inorganic processes result in different proportions of the carbon-12 and carbon-14 isotopes. The Moon always shows the same face to us on Earth, due to it being synchronously locked, meaning that it rotates once on its axis in the same time it takes to orbit the Earth. This is partly due to the Moon's irregular gravitational field, and the tides in its surface caused by the pull of the Earth. Over a few thousand years, the Moon slowly reached a position which minimised the potential and kinetic energy, reaching a stable orbit. But in a report published in the journal Icarus during January, researchers present evidence that suggests that the Moon could have once faced the other way, showing its other face to the Earth. Evidence for this idea comes from a study of the ages of impact craters on the lunar surface by researchers at the Institut de Physique du Globe de Paris in France. Just as the front windscreen of a moving car collects more snowflakes than the rear window, there should be more impacts on the leading edge of the moon than on the trailing side, 
and so there should also be more craters. Using the known population of near-Earth objects, the cratering rate is expected to be about 29% greater on the leading western edge, also known as the apex of motion, than that on the trailing eastern edge, or antapex of motion. What the study found was that the younger craters in their sample were mostly on the western hemisphere, close to the apex of motion, as would be expected for the Moon's current orientation. The older impact basins, however, were more likely to occur on the eastern hemisphere, close to the antapex of motion. This uneven distribution implies that the Moon did indeed undergo a change in orientation more than 3.8 billion years ago. To alter the Moon's orientation takes a major impact, and a number of likely impact features have been identified, although the authors point out that improved topographic maps of both the near and far sides of the Moon, as well as new data on the Moon's gravitational field from existing and planned lunar probes, will help to more accurately determine the sizes of many impact basins and hopefully support their ideas. And finally, the International Year of Astronomy got off to a good start with an official launch ceremony at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris on the 15th of January. Astronomers from around the world came together with students, astronauts, artists and politicians to celebrate the start of a year of events hoping to put astronomy prominently in the public eye. 2009 celebrates 400 years since Galileo first turned a telescope to the sky and observed the moon and the planets. But in West Sussex in England, the start of a year of celebration was marked by recognition of a little-known English astronomer. Thomas Harriot was a contemporary of Galileo, and according to papers at the West Sussex Record Office, he used the telescope to observe and map the moon before Galileo. Harriot's maps, which are more detailed than Galileo's, are dated 26th of July, 1609, just five months before Galileo made his own observations in December of the same year. Thank you very much, Megan. And now Stuart Lowe has interviewed Steve Longmore about massive star formation. Okay, we're joined by Dr. Stephen Longmore of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Boston, the U.S. Welcome to the Jodcast. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Now, you've been working on massive star formation. That's right. And you've been using something called the SMA. Tell us about that. Yep, so the SMA is a submillimeter array. It's an eight times uh, six meter antenna uh, observing simultaneously. So these uh, eight antenna or dishes are spread over a large area, uh, up to half a kilometer um, apart. And they, by combining the signals, it acts like a giant antenna of that size, so uh, half a kilometer. Now, it's uh, very difficult and extremely expensive to build a, one dish or one antenna this size, mm. but by combining the signals, we can we can do that. And this gives uh, a fantastic resolution, so we can see the regions I'm looking at in exquisite detail. Okay, and you said this is in sub-millimeter, and I think it's on the top of Mauna Kea? That's right, yeah. So its location on the top of Mauna Kea gives it some very, uh, very good advantages. By uh, being at 4,000 meters or 14,000 feet, it's above most of the water vapor in, in the atmosphere. And this gives it uh, access to much of the electromagnetic spectrum that is not accessible from, from sea level. Um, and the SMA is the only uh, interferometer that's working in this, uh, what's called this, the submillimeter wavelength regime. Right, and submillimeter is about 600 or 1,000 times longer than optical wavelengths that we're used to seeing yep. with our eyes. That's right, much, much longer wavelength. So this is this is great because um, in this regime, the submillimeter regime, you see light from very cold gas and dust, 
and this very cool gas and dust uh, is emitted from objects, many objects, when they form. So, for example, planets and stars and even galaxies emit light in this submillimeter regime. Mm. So it's a very powerful window if you can get access to it, but it's difficult, which is why you need to put it on top of a uh, on top of a mountain to to be able to to see it. So, tell us about the sort of things you've been looking at with the SMA. Well, I've, I've been looking at massive star formation regions. Um, Massive stars are very important in the observable universe. They're actually a bit like James Dean. They're very <laughs> rare. They live fast. Uh, they, they die young. But in that short lifespan, they exert a huge influence o- on their surroundings. So, for example, in, over the course of their lifetime, they inject as much energy into their surroundings as a supernova. And then just to uh, to make matters worse, they then die as supernova. Uh, and so they really obliterate their, their surroundings. Right. So if you were to look at an image of a galaxy... The, which contains about 100 billion stars, say, yep. then they would be taking up quite a large amount of that galaxy. Well, if, if you were, if you look at a galaxy that's, that's forming stars, if you were to look at the spectral energy distribution, so to see where, where's the bulk of the energy in this galaxy coming out, that would be dominated by, by the massive stars. Right. Because they're, uh, they're so rare and short-lived, they're really difficult to find and study. So as a result, compared to our understanding of how the lower mass stars form, their, the evolution is really quite poorly understood how, how they actually evolve. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to um, understand how these massive stars form uh, because they play such a pivotal role in the evolution of our universe. So how, how do you go about finding out these details? Very good question. What, we start from what we do know. That's always a, always a good place to start. So we know that, um, that massive stars form in these very massive, cold, dense molecular clouds. So these things can have up to 100,000 times the mass or even a million times the, the mass of, of, of our sun. And what sort of things are these molecular clouds made of? It's uh, The bulk of it is molecular hydrogen, actually, which is slightly annoying because we can't see it. Um, <laughs> you have to... Uh, you have to use other other ways of looking at it because you can't see the, this molecular hydrogen directly. But we, we can infer it's there. For example, if you live in the Southern Hemisphere and you go out in a, of a night time and you see these dark bands across the, the Milky Way, mm. that's dust. So it's cold. We can, we can see that, that these things are there because they block the starlight. There's so much gas and dust in these things that they block the light from background stars. So that's how, one way we can tell that they're there. Um, and, and we know that the stars form in, inside these giant molecular clouds. Uh, if they get large enough and dense enough and cold enough, then they can collapse under their own gravity. And if they and once they get dense enough for nuclear burning to switch on, then stars can form. Hmm. So what what we really want to know, what I'm the kind of question I'm really trying to get at is, well, we've got these giant molecular clouds, and we see that there's uh, massive stars that exist. We want to know, given the conditions of these giant molecular clouds, how many stars of, a, of different masses will come out because the ratio of low, the number of low mass stars to high mass stars uh, determines the, how the subsequent evolution of the, the in, fact, well, in fact the galaxy, how, how that will proceed. If you've got lots of massive stars then it's going to be very disruptive and if you've got fewer massive stars then it's going to be quieter. What does low mass and high mass mean for stars compared to say Excellent our question. sun? Yeah. So there's a, a cutoff at around eight times the mass of our own sun so eight solar masses. Stars larger than that uh, they're, they're different in many ways. Well, first of all, they, they will die as supernova. So uh, a star of greater than eight solar masses will die as supernova. They also have enough UV or ultraviolet radiation that they can ionize their surrounding. So that's they like split the electrons off from the uh, Exactly, exactly right. So they, um, they have enough of these very high energy photons uh, emitted that they can begin to ionize or dissociate the, the surrounding molecular gas. So, yeah, they're they're... Special for for a number of reasons, right? And a low mass star, I guess, is something more like the sun. Then, yeah, the sun's a very typical star. Um, 
anything anything less than eight solar masses. But the as you get to smaller and smaller masses, you get more and more stars. So the sun is a very typical star. And you're saying that about the different models which produce different distributions of high mass stars, lots of times the mass of the sun or low mass stars. Can you tell us about those different models? Yeah. So there's there's different theoretical models which try and uh, try and understand this problem. So you've got the, the initial conditions, these giant molecular clouds, and the the, the difference between these models is how they uh, how this the, the gas collapses and and fragments. So you, you can imagine that uh, in the first model, mm-hmm. everything initially collapses down to to small objects of about the mass of the sun. But then objects are forming over dense regions, so there's lots of these uh, objects of a solar lots mass. Of or small sun yep, lots of small sun-sized things. lots of small sun-mass things. Then they will have a deeper gravitational potential, so they can attract more matter. So more matter will fall onto them. Right, so they, they attract they the attract other small more, blobs yep, of stuff. Yes, exactly. And all the gas that's not in these blobs falls onto them, so that they they grow more than those that are formed in isolation, because they can't attract as much matter. So in, in that model, everything starts small, and if you're lucky to be born in a very dense region, then you get more matter, whereas if you're unlucky enough to be born in an isolated region, you stay small. So that model proceeds over time. So your mass is dependent on where you're, where you're born, basically. Whereas in the other model, it's more of a static model, where the clumps, for, for one reason or another, are born with a different size. And then if you're born in a big clump, then you'll form a big star. And if you're born in a small clump, you form a small star. But it doesn't depend on where you are in relation to anything else. It's just how much, how big you are to start off with. Right. So it's almost like in biology when you've got the difference between nature and nurture. This is something that changes with your lifetime as a star. That's an excellent way of describing it. Yeah. So the in, other way is genetics is what you start with, and it defines yes, yeah. who you are. Yeah. So in in the the second model, it's what you what you start with defines what you're going to end up as with the star. Whereas in the, the first one, it's what's surrounds you, what your environment is that's going to determine where you end So up. how do you go about starting to distinguish between which of these two models might be the right one to describe yeah, well, massive star formation? What you have to do is you have to know the age of your objects, or at least the relative age. Even though these things are very fast-lived, so they, they form in 10,000 years or, or, or so, 10, 10 to 5 years. That's very quick for astronomy. It's very quick for astronomy. It's like, uh, I don't know, they're, they're like popcorn in, in galaxies if you look at them in, in the <laughs> right. sort of lifetimes of galaxies. So you need to be very, uh, very lucky to catch them or you need to look very hard to, right. to get them. So what we need, we first of all do is separate them out into age. We get them when they're very young before they've uh, formed any stars and then we separate them out in age and try and follow how this gas is collapsing. And you can imagine if you look young enough and you see lots of things of about the same size, then that would favour the nurture. Right, model, so they, as you, as you they said. bring, because there's so many of them together, they bring more gas in. Yep, that's right. Whereas if you find the opposite, that you find objects of different masses, then the latter one looks like it's more favourable. So the, the idea is to look at, uh, to do this statistically, and uh, so look at lots of objects and see which model is more favourable. Okay, and you've been doing that? Yeah, so uh, using the SMA, we've uh, done it for a small number of objects, uh, done it with six objects, um, and have been trying to com- trying to compare them. How does that pan out then? Have you got any ideas which model might be right from those results? We're we're working on it. It's work work in progress. Um, right. From the the initial data, uh, it looked as if we were seeing many objects of the same size. 
but we have to be we have to be careful when we're looking at this uh, because there are many um, the devils in the detail as they mm. as they say. So we're we're working on it. All right. <laughs> well, very good. Um, we wish you the best of luck with those observations, and I hope you get much. some more. And I hope it sheds light on which of these models might be right. Yes, I'll, I'll keep you posted. Thank you for talking. Wonderful. To us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for that, Steve. Now, as you may know, it is now the International Year of Astronomy, and lots of events are taking place because of that. So, Stuart, what's up next? Well, some countries launched with the eclipse that was a few days ago, visible from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, unfortunately, we all missed it up here in the north. Yeah, that's um, a pity, isn't it? I mean, the Southern Hemisphere always gets the better things. I know, they've got the best half of the sky, and now they get eclipses. It's, it's just not fair. It's not fair, no. Anyway, there's something that the whole planet can participate in. And Excellent. The Hubble Space Telescope are doing something very special. They're allowing the people of the world to vote for what we would like the Hubble Space Telescope to observe next. So it's like the Oscars. It is a bit like the Oscars here. So they, they've nar- narrowed it down to six nominations, and we pr- should probably say what the nominations are. So, the nominations are NGC 6634, a star-forming region. There's NGC 6072, a planetary nebula. NGC 40, also a planetary nebula. NGC 5172, a spiral galaxy. The Ajon Galaxy, NGC 4289. And finally, ARP 274, a pair of interacting galaxies. Cast your votes now. So you can indeed cast your votes if you go to youdecide.hubblesite.org. If you go there, you'll be able to very easily click vote on one of those six objects. And they have some preview images of those uh, nebula and galaxies. They do on the website. There are some little thumbnail pictures to give you an idea what the best pictures we currently have of those objects. And whichever one has the most votes by the 1st of March, Hubble will go and observe. And the results of that will be released during the 100 Hours of Astronomy, which is a big celebration of star parties and webcasts and things at the beginning of April. So what is your favourite, Stuart? Um, well, I've, I was trying to think about this earlier as to what I would pick. I'm tempted by NGC 6072. The planetary nebula. The planetary nebula, indeed. What about you, Roy? What, what object would you choose? Uh, I like the star-forming region. It's where stars are born, uh, so you get to see what stars are like, you know, just after they're uh, being created. Yeah, and with lots of gas, they tend to look quite pretty in pictures as the well. The gas so. should look pretty good as well. So it'll make for a nice picture, and there'll be some science in there as well. But currently number one is actually the Interacting Galaxies ARP274. So that's what the pe- people like at the moment. So go to youdecide.hubblesite.org and you can register your vote for which object you would like the Hubble to observe. Very good. So if you do have a slightly smaller telescope, you'll still be able to see some wonderful objects. And if you want to find out what's visible for the next month, here's the night sky with Ian Morrison. Right, well, the night sky in February. And actually, it could be quite an interesting month. Let's start with the stars first. And as you look out towards the south after the sun has well set, you have that wonderful skyscape with Orion reasonably high in the south. The three stars of his belt point up towards the constellation of Taurus on the upper right. We'll come back to Taurus later on. Down to the lower left, you come to Sirius, the brightest star in our northern sky in Canis Major. The upper left-hand star of Orion is called Betelgeuse. It's it's a a red supergiant, probably about the size of the orbit of Jupiter, something like that. And at the lower right, we have Rigel, 
which is a blue supergiant about 50,000 times brighter than our sun. Well, I've talked about these before. Let's just work over towards the east a bit. Uh, it's a fairly blank part of the sky. The first constellation that one goes through is called Monoceros, and there's really nothing there you can see with your unaided eye. It has, however, a very nice uh, nebula called the Rosette Nebula, which you can see pictures of. And also, I think it's the location of the nearest stellar mass black hole that we believe um, is about 3,500 light years away from our sun. It's called Monoceros X1, it's one of its other names, and um, it was discovered way back in about 1976, and we at Jodrell Bank, little team that I was in, we actually discovered its precise position. Further over from Monoceros, up a little bit, well you have um, Procyon in Canis Minor, almost a single star really you see in that constellation. Up to the left of that is Cancer, and there's almost nothing to see there with your unaided eye, but binoculars show a very nice cluster called a Beehive Cluster, or Prisopy. Quite often the moon passes in front of the Beehive Cluster. It's a lovely thing to see when that happens. And you continue over in that direction, you come of course to Leo, and we're, we're going to come to Leo a couple of times in the highlights this month, and also because Saturn is lying just below it. So that's the sky. What about the planets? Well, the most obvious planet to see in the early evening after sunset, and you cannot miss it, is Venus. I know one says you cannot miss things, but really, it is shining at about magnitude 4.5, very high up. It, it, it's probably one of its best apparitions at the moment that you ever get. Um, as the month progresses, it actually gets a bit nearer to us. The amount of Venus that's illuminated actually is reduced, but the angular size gets bigger because it's getting nearer. The two effects tend to cancel out, and the brightness stays pretty much constant. So you can barely miss Venus. The other planet that's now coming into good view is of course Saturn. And it's actually lying below Leo, quite a bit below, but there is a funny bit of the constellation that sort of dips right down between two others, uh, and that's where Saturn is at the moment. It's not as bright as it often is because the ring system is almost there, John. The angle's about one degree at the moment. It sort of wiggles about a bit during the year, and at some point later in this year, around September, the rings will be precisely edge on, and they'll basically disappear. But still, very nice object to look at. So we've got Venus, we've got Saturn to see in the evening sky. Now, all of the other planets have been sneaking around behind the sun, and they're just about becoming visible in the dawn and I'll talk about them together in one of the highlights of the month, one of the toughest things I've ever suggested you might look out for, but it might be worth a try. So we'll come to Mars, Mercury, and Jupiter all together in the highlight later on. So let's have a look at some of those highlights, and there are several quite nice things to see. Well, I, I said just a moment ago that the three planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Mercury, have all been hiding behind the sun, and they're coming around into the pre-dawn sky. They won't really be easily visible at all until the end of the month, but on February the 22nd, it might well be worth trying to have a look, because they're joined on their right by the moon. There'll be a lovely little line-up. On the upper right, we have the moon, 
then Mercury, then Jupiter, and then Mars. Now, the problem at the moment is this. The ecliptic, which is where we tend to see the planets, the path of the sun across the sky, is at a very shallow angle with the eastern horizon at dawn. And that means, although the planets are at some reasonable angle away from the sun, and they rise fairly well before the sun, by the time the sun rises, their elevation is only measured in sort of 7 to 10 degrees or so. So in order to see them, you've got to have a very good low eastern horizon, perhaps being up on a hill looking towards the east where it's lower down. Then you would have a chance of seeing them. Binoculars will certainly help. Obviously, you'll see the moon easily and probably Jupiter. But to see Mercury and Mars, which is the lower left of the four objects, you'll need binoculars. But I think it's worth a try. But let me just say, do not continue looking for them once the sun has risen. If your binoculars stray onto the sun, you could obviously hurt your eyes. Now, I mentioned Saturn was just below Leo. Well, around Feb the 23rd, any time, let's say from the 22nd to the 24th, a comet, Comet Lulin, is going to pass just below it. On the 23rd, it'll be two degrees below Saturn. So if you put a binocular field of view where Saturn is reasonably high up in the frame, in the field of view, you'll see Comet Lulin below at about magnitude 7. Now, binoculars, given a reasonably dark sky, will get you down to magnitude 8 or 9, so there shouldn't be any real problem. Um, there's a fairly bright star just to the right of Saturn. It's called Sigma Leonis. Now, that should look starlight, pinpoint, whereas Comet Lulin will look like a little fuzzy ball and will be considerably fainter. And on one particular point of time, they'll make a very nice little triangle. So I think that's a well worth while thing to look for around February the 23rd. Find Saturn, that's easy, below Leo, and then just below it, moving below across, you should find Comet Lulin. Now, another nice thing to try with binoculars, also related to Leo. The largest of the minor planets is called Ceres. In fact, when it was first discovered, it was called a planet. Then it got demoted to a minor planet, and just a couple of years ago, it was sort of promoted again to be one of the dwarf planets. A dwarf planet is an object where it's got sufficient mass and size so that gravity makes it form a spherical shape. So Ceres, which is the largest and most massive of the minor planets, is now a dwarf planet. And it is basically moving upwards above the hindquarters of Leo. There's a star called Zosma, which is fairly obvious. It's the upper sort of left star of the body of Leo. And Ceres follows a path basically moving upwards through Leo from Zosma throughout the month. If you go into Google, put in night sky, you'll find the Jodrellbank night sky page. And on there, you'll find, first of all, an overall chart of Leo to show you where Zosma is. And secondly, a detailed chart to show you where Ceres will be on each of the, roughly each of the days throughout the month. It's going to be again at magnitude about 6.9 to 7.2, so pretty much the same as Comet Lulin's likely to be. And you will therefore need binoculars. And a good thing to do is to have a look on hopefully a couple of nights or so and check that it's moved. So that would be rather nice. Spot, if you can, a dwarf planet. 
And finally, let's just say that after sunset, there's not really a better time at which to observe those two lovely open clusters in Taurus. The Hyades is the first one you come to if you move up to the right from the three stars of Orion. There's a very bright star called Aldebaran. It's actually an orange or red giant, but it's actually rather orangey, that looks as though it's part of the cluster, although it's a lot brighter. In fact, it isn't. It's about halfway between the Earth and the Hyades cluster, and whereas all the Hyades stars are moving in one direction towards the upper left of Orion, uh, in fact, Aldebaran is moving from up to down. It's going sort of southwards. So that's a lovely thing to see in binoculars. And then up to the right, of course, you come to the wonderful Pleiades cluster. It's one of the youngest open clusters. It contains lots of bright blue stars. And the fact that we don't see any red giants in the cluster tells us that it can't be more than about a 100 million years old. So it really is very young. Um, with a telescope, you can sometimes make out the fact that the brighter stars have some nebulosity around them. It looks as though the cluster's moving through a dust cloud, and the dust particles are reflecting some of the blue light from these hot blue stars. And you can look on the web, and there are wonderful photographs of the Pleiades cluster. But it can look really good in a pair of reasonably high-power binoculars. I've managed to acquire a pair of 15 by 50 image-stabilized binoculars made by Canon. And if you lock them onto the Pleiades, it looks absolutely stunning. So two lovely open clusters to observe, the Hyades and the Pleiades clusters in Taurus. Well, what about the southern sky? Well, I've had the great uh, joy of spending Christmas, in fact, in New Zealand. So I've had many opportunities to observe the wonderful part of the southern sky that basically contains the constellations of Vela and Carina going down to Crooks, the Southern Cross, and below that, Centaurus. And that, at the present time, is rising very nicely after sunset. One of the brightest stars in that region, the most southerly, is in, for, in fact is called Alpha Centauri. It's one of the nearest stars to us. It's part of a triple system, a small little red dwarf star part of the system is the nearest at 4.2 light years away. It's called Proxima Centauri. Up to the left of that is a star called Beta Centauri. In fact, it's obviously, you'll see it's fainter than Alpha Centauri, but in fact, it's very much intrinsically brighter. It's about a hundred times further away than Alpha Centauri. So to appear as bright as it does, it means it's fundamentally a very bright star. Now those are the pointers. If you follow those, you come up to Crooks, the Southern Cross. And if it is really dark and you can see the pattern of the Milky Way, you'll notice just below Crooks is a rather dark region. It's called the Coal Sack. It's a thick dust cloud, and that's fairly obvious. Now, as you move up along the Milky Way, you have a really beautiful region of the sky that goes up to Carina, and up there is, in fact, something called the False Cross. It's a rather larger cross, same sort of orientation. And uh, when I was looking at that the other night, I actually spotted something I wasn't really expecting to see. Um, if you just go up to the right of the right-hand star of the False Cross, you actually see a little fuzzy region. It is, in fact, a rather lovely open cluster called C96. It's in what's called the Caldwell Catalogue, which Patrick Moore has made to add to the 
very well-known Messier catalogue. And, of course, it includes objects from the southern sky. And that's a very nice object in a small telescope, but you can pick it out quite nicely in binoculars. And then within the region below the False Cross, towards Crooks, the Southern Cross, you have the Carina Nebula, which is one of the brightest regions of the Milky Way. It's a fantastic region to observe in detail. It contains a star called Eta Carini, which is probably the next star that's going to blow up any time soon near our Earth, and that will be truly spectacular, visible in broad daylight. There may well be a great burst of gamma rays ejected as or sent out as the star explodes, but they tend to be beamed, and happily for us, that beam does not look as though it includes the Earth. So it's probably safe to try and observe it over the next few years. But someday, that will certainly become a very impressive object. Now, while I was down there, I actually bought two books. I'd just like to mention them very briefly. One of them is by Richard Hall. It's called How to Gaze at the Southern Stars. It's a very nice uh, book about someone who's based um, in, in, in South Island, New Zealand. And also, each year, the New Zealand astronomers produce the Astronomical Yearbook. And I bought the 2009 yearbook, and it contains some very nice star charts, what you see to the south and a description, and what you'll see to the north throughout the year. So I would commend that to you. It's 20 New Zealand dollars, which doesn't sound too bad to me, for what is a beautifully produced book. So there we go. I'm looking forward to getting back to the Southern Hemisphere to see the sky there again. Well, I hope you have an enjoyable month's observing. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, at the beginning of February, on the 6th and 7th, in Kensington Town Hall in London, it will be AstroFest 2009. Now, you may remember the Jodcast was at AstroFest 2007 and 2008, and indeed we will be at AstroFest 2009 as well. So if you're going to AstroFest, come and find us at the Jodlebank Centre for Astrophysics stand and say hello. And we've come to the point in the show where we talk about your listener feedback and when you tell us what you think of the show. So, Roy, you've got some emails... Yes, we always love to receive your emails. If it's positive feedback or whether you have comments, it's all welcome. We have some feedback from James Lewis, who is using Linux to listen to our podcast. I have to say, I'm a big supporter of Linux as well, but you can't use iTunes on Linux, which is a really a, a big pity, but we can't help that in any way. But if you want to leave your feedback, you don't necessarily need iTunes. You can just go to our website, uh, jotcast.net, and leave your feedback there. Or you can leave it in the forum, which a few people are starting to do. Um, you can get to that on the website. Just click on forum or go to forum.jodcast.net. And leave your message there, and we try to have a nice discussion there. So it's a nice place to leave your feedback. So further, we would like to thank J.P. Cormier, De Bashis, and Rob Johnson for giving us their feedback. Over to iTunes Reviews, we had a review from PCB, who mentioned the Jocelyn Bell interview and said that the excitement of discovering something new came across beautifully. And I say I have to agree that Jocelyn was very good at describing how she discovered pulsars back in 1967. It was a very good story. It's a wonderful story, yes. It is. And we should also say thank you to Ambutech, to Country Bumpkin, to Zeus Wales, and to CJ Backflip for all their reviews on iTunes. Roy, what's been happening on Facebook? So we also have a group on Facebook, which people are using, and should make more use of if they can. 
So if you're on Facebook go and aren't already a member of our group, go along and join up. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Or on YouTube on youtube.com slash jodcast. And of course you can always give us feedback on the website at www.jodcast.net. So that brings us to the end of this show, and it just leaves us to say thank you to Steve Longmore. Thank you to Fiona Threll for editing the intro and outro. In the intro, David McIver was Mazer, Tom Stitzer was Spengler, Bill Young was Stance, and Shane Harris was Venkman. So, until next time, jod on! Bye! I try to think of the most harmless thing. Something that would never destroy us. Something I loved from my childhood. And you came up with that? An astronomy podcast? Gentlemen, full stream with Artron Pulse. Blast it! It's not working! Cross the beach! Cross the beach! But that could destroy everything. Do it! What? What? Bankman, crossing the beams could have killed us. Life is a state of mind. It's my favorite state. Either way, my readings suggest that Mazer has been blasted somewhere. This Jodcast is now held within the World Wide Web as disembodied voices and video. A good day's work, I'd say. Come on, you guys. There's cleaning up to do, and I don't want to be the one to help.